Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins. This week, I had the chance to talk with Brenna O'Malley. Brenna is a registered dietitian and the founder of the mindful health brand and virtual private practice, The Wealthful. Brenna specializes in helping people move away from dieting and disordered eating patterns to develop a healthier relationship with food and their body. She's passionate about changing the language we use to talk about nutrition and health in the media, online, and in food marketing. It was so wonderful to catch up with Brenna and discuss topics related to health, nutrition, wellness, and specifically intuitive eating, especially how to practice intuitive eating when in college. Generally in life, there's so many uncertainties that can happen, but especially in college when you're entering a new environment for the first time, there's just so much to process and so much to deal with. And oftentimes social events revolve around food, eating and drinking and um, going out and doing these kinds of activities. And it's really challenging, I think, for a lot of people to adopt a healthier relationship to their their body and their mind and practicing, you know, positive self-talk. And the way you consume food and think about eating is um, can really affect your self-esteem and confidence levels. So we had a really wonderful discussion about how intuitive eating can be a really mindful approach to developing healthier eating habits and um, a healthier approach towards seeing and appreciating your body. Before you get to hear from Brenna, I want to throw out a quick sponsored shout out to Anchor, which is, as you guys know, (laughs) the app that I use to record this podcast from. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, Brenna. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to reconnect here on this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast this afternoon. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I think this will be an awesome conversation. Yeah, and talking about eating habits and intuitive eating and nutrition is so important, especially, you know, for college students who are coming to campus and it's just, there's so many changes that are happening all at once. So I'm really excited to talk more about what inspired you to create the Wellful and your nutrition philosophy and all these different topics that we're going to discuss later today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I started the Wellful in 2017. So I had just finished or I was finishing up my last year in um, in college. And basically I had like, I was already studying nutrition and had worked for some other really awesome like food companies in food marketing and that space. And then some dietitians in private practice and growing their practice and doing some virtual pieces. But I just still felt like social media was 
already big, but getting bigger at that point with a lot of different food blogs. And I was following a lot of influencers who were, you know, health focused. And it just felt like every time you were scrolling, you were scrolling by contradictions, basically, of, you know, someone really being super excited about like this one way of eating or cutting out these certain foods. And then someone else was saying the opposite. And it just felt like, and I was talking with my friends about this too, there was so much miscommunication and it just made you feel like you were always like missing the boat kind of like everything was um, really confusing and kind of a lot of pressure. So I really started the Wealthful at first to be like a newsletter that would help to just be in like an unbiased voice of, you know, some research, some, you know, different opinions about things. And then since then it's kind of evolved as I've also become a dietitian since I started it um, to be more about intuitive eating a non-diet approach and really figuring out like what helps you feel good and feel best and to navigate those messages. So it's really um, evolved from just like that email newsletter into now like a virtual private practice. And we have some group coaching options and um, a blog that we have contributing writers for. So it's been really cool to kind of see it evolve like that. I, I love how organic that evolution was. And I think what you're doing is so incredible because I've also scrolled through Instagram and you see all these different contradictions, like which diet is the right diet for you? There's keto, there's plant-based, there's paleo, like there's so many different types of diets. And now there's, I guess, a lot in the literature about how diets don't actually really work, which I'd love to also talk a little bit about, but I've also just found nutrition in general and eating to be so confusing when it, I really don't think it should be. And I love how you have adopted this approach of just intuitive eating and kind of moving away from dieting to find what makes you feel good. And feeling good is so much more than just exercising. A lot of it does have to do with what you're putting into your body. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Right. And, and how you feel about that too. I think there can be a lot of stress, like both from personal experience and then just, you know, in general, the way that we talk about food and exercise and all of these things is kind of stressful. It's like, you know, are you doing this right? Are you doing this enough? Are you, um, you know, all of these kind of conditional pieces, which I think adds a lot of pressure to those like already kind of rocky relationships. A lot of the times, especially when you're going through like high school, adolescence, college, t- like getting your first job, moving somewhere, all of those things are like huge changes. And then to also feel this um, pretty extreme pressure around those things can just be, you know, a lot to navigate. Definitely. And I found that food is very personal and also really political. And so when you, let's say you first come to college and you're trying to make friends and a lot of that has to do with not only just like going out, but also going out to like eat or have lunch or dinner, whatever it may be. And maybe your eating habits are very different than the people you're starting to become friends with. So navigating that can be quite challenging. Like, how do you, how do you navigate that kind of situation when you have a different eating structure or habit or preferences than the the group that you're in? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's like a couple different ways that that can happen. Right. Cause I think there's one, everyone's probably going to have everyone has different experiences with food, right? You all grew up in different households and like different parts of the state or the country or the world. And so you have different things that you're bringing to that. But then there's also, um, 
you know, your relationship with food and other people's relationships with food. And as you go to college and everything kind of blends together and merges, you might be hearing more about things that you didn't hear about before. Like, you know, someone may be like dieting in a certain way or kind of restricting or feeling badly about certain foods, or that might be something that you're kind of already struggling with and kind of bringing to the conversation. So I do think it's definitely hard because you're sort of meeting these new people, there's a lot of like pressure and newness of, you know, making friends and making connections and like having a good time and getting to know people and all of those pieces too. So um, I think that there isn't enough said about like that, that's really normal that that to feel that way. And that pretty much everyone else is also feeling that way, right. Of like, you know, being maybe like, think hyper thinking about those food choices or feeling like uncomfortable in like your body or comparing your plate to somebody else's or all of those other pieces. And I think, um, we just had a blog post go up like this, this week of that we're recording, but we'll be like a few weeks ago, probably when you air this, but it was just about like how common, um, behaviors around food and body image are like disordered in college and how that's normalized. And I think that that's just a conversation that we need to have more of that. Um, it's not that those things are normal, but they're really normalized. And like, we don't really, we kind of just take them for granted. And I think that can make it really tough for those transitions too. And then knowing that it doesn't have to feel like that. Like you don't have to be thinking about food that much um, throughout the day or like worrying about what you're going to wear because of like how you look like, of course, we always have like some degree of like maybe thinking about what we're going to wear, like being excited about clothes in that way, but not like preventing you from going and having fun with your friends. Right. So knowing that those things are normalized and like a lot of people are having similar thoughts and it doesn't have to continue to be that way forever or for all of your years of college too. So I think kind of like zooming out like that to see um, that we can change those things too. Yeah. I, that really, that reminds me of this Instagram post that I saw actually about these different habits that have been adopted like on college campuses or really just like in uh, like a younger culture about certain behaviors that are normalized around food and eating and dieting. And there was one um, post that said how basically like when you go out, some people will say, oh, I'm going to have like just a salad for dinner so that I can have more to drink and that way not like eating a lot beforehand and just very, very small nuanced messages I think come from those types of behaviors or discussions. And I I'm guessing maybe that was also discussed in that blog post that you guys wrote recently. Um, I'd love to talk more about like those little nuances that um, kind of pervade in like our social circles that like that, you know, talk about, disordered eating kind of and make it more normalized yeah I feel like I mean you're in college now too so I feel like you're like what are some things that you are there any things that you feel like you notice that are kind of like that yeah that's a great question I would definitely say like the eating thing before going out like oh I'm gonna have like a really light dinner like I'm just gonna have a snack or um coming back from a night out. It, it, a lot of food actually ha- revolves around going out, which is interesting. Um, coming back from a night out, a lot yeah. of people love to hit like the dining halls and get really greasy fried food. And sometimes like that's not necessarily what you're craving. So it can be a bit uncomfortable if you're with your friends and they're all having a bunch of like fries and chicken fingers. And you're kind of just sitting there and 
you don't really want it, but everyone's eating it. So you're going to have it anyways. Or Mm -hmm. the alternative to that is um, still wanting like that late night snack when you come back, but it's going to be like carrots and hummus, for example. And then you're the only one having like the healthier alternative than having like the greasy fried food that everyone's eating. So that can create kind of a tension. Um, And also like when you get to college and you're just observing how you eat and how others eat, at least the way it works at my university is that you kind of, you just swipe for every item that you purchase. So it's really like unlimited how much you can have. And um, like the portion sizes that you're given, how much are you finishing on your plate? If you're eating next to someone versus how much they're finishing. And it's, it's very subtle and very nuanced. And I think those are the things I've kind of picked up. Um, and just like what options you're choosing at dining halls too. So there's, there's so much that I've, I've seen and it's, especially if you're living on campus, you're locked into the food that's offered there. So it can be a bit more challenging. Right. Yeah. I think the whole, I think the piece about like drinking and going out and those pieces are so, um, prevalent and honestly like they're talked about because I feel like everyone especially when you're in college is like on the same page about it right it's just kind of this thing that's like normal or you know not really like a thing to talk about almost but then um like from I guess my perspective now as like a dietitian or just when you like zoom out and can have like more perspective you're not in it as much a lot of the times those things can come from restriction too so like it's really common that if you are maybe eating like really, I'm putting in quotes, like really well during the week, right? Or like really maybe during the day even. And then when you, after you go out and like drink and like have fun with your friends, then you feel like this is like your chance to eat these foods that you normally restrict, right? So it's almost like putting yourself into that binge restrict mindset or all or nothing or like last supper kind of an idea. Like, oh, this doesn't count, I'm putting that in quotes too, because, you know, I like it's really late at night. It's like, I was so like good all day or all week. And it kind of sets you up for that like turbulent relationship too, of then like feeling like that's your chance to eat these foods that you otherwise restrict. Or it can also be that if you've been not eating enough throughout the day, like you were mentioning how it's really common to try and not eat so much maybe before drinking or before going out, then you're also legitimately hungry. And so it makes a lot of sense that you might feel out of control around food. You might be like really craving these foods or a lot of these foods um, that maybe you wouldn't even normally want or don't allow yourself to have. And so like when we, it's hard to see those pieces when you're in it and doing it and it's the norm. But if we zoom out, it's like, okay, this actually makes a lot of sense if you're feeling this way or feeling like you're really looking forward to what you're going to order when you go out or like that you really don't have this like control when you go out, but it's like, okay, are you legitimately hungry? Are you restricting those foods otherwise? And when we can kind of see that, um, it can be helpful to like better understand that and feel less like this is like a fault of mine or I'm so, um, you know, I can't control myself or I have these like quote bad habits, but really it's like, you're kind of the way that it's normalized. It's like, you're kind of setting yourself up to, to feel that way too. Yeah. And that, I feel like is a really great segue into discussing more about what intuitive eating is, because it sounds like in those situations, you're not really listening to your body and you're out, you're not, you're not like in that experience. You're kind of experiencing, experiencing it outside of yourself and you're, you're feeling that need for control, or you think that you're 
eating really well. And then you think it's okay to let loose a little bit on the weekend. And then it can be this perpetual cycle of guilt and shame and it can get really messy. And I know quite a bit about intuitive eating and how that relates to that, but my listeners might not know what intuitive eating is. So I'd love to kind of talk about how that ties into the scenario you just described. Yeah, definitely. So intuitive eating basically is a non-diet approach to health and eating where we are focusing more on our internal cues, which are things like hunger, fullness, satisfaction, what foods you like, what foods feel good to you, what foods are available to you, all of those different things that are more internal instead of external cues. So external things might be something like a meal plan or following a specific outline of a diet or eating within certain hours of the day or, you know, eating foods that are someone else kind of decides are quote good and not the bad foods. Right. So it's really focused more on you as an individual. And it's based on the idea that we're all born intuitive eaters. So if you think about a really little kid, like they eat foods that they like, you know, with some maybe coaxing to try new foods, but like if they're available to them, they'll eat all foods and they'll eat them in an amount that's satisfying. They'll eat foods that taste really good. They'll stop when they're full and maybe go like play a game or go run off and do something else. Kind of not having these, um, this extra thinking that a lot of the times we're doing around food, right. Of like kind of judging our choices or wondering if we should have more or not. Um, it's just this much more peaceful relationship with food. And then as we grow up, because of a lot of things, whether it's like an outright, you know, diet, maybe that you started young or at any age, um, or just the messages that we get around weight and how we should look or how we should eat, or just that we end up going through, like, you have to eat lunch, you know, in middle school and high school and elementary school at a certain time. And then the dinners at a certain time. And, um, you don't always have that like opportunity of choice. And so it's really, um, about trying to get back to that more peaceful way of eating. So yeah, there aren't food rules. So you're kind of allowing all foods to fit. And while that might feel scary, because a lot of the times it can feel like, you know, if I allow myself to eat whatever it is, whatever food, you know, maybe feels like your food that if you let yourself eat it, you would never stop kind of a thing. Sometimes it's like cookies or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, then but as we allow that food to be a part of your diet, just like with anything, um, it starts to just become a more normal part of your diet. It's less exciting when you have access to it all the time. It still tastes really good, but you might be able to eat it in an amount that's more satisfying and feels less out of control or chaotic. Kind of like we were talking about with like the late night part too. If you allow those foods into your day and into your week in a more like um, neutral way, then they're less something that you need to wait until a specific time of day or day of the week or, you know, day of the year to, to eat just kind of gives your, gives you that opportunity to have things be more neutral. Yeah. And I love that point about how intuitive eating kind of originated from how you ate as a child. Like you didn't, you never really thought about what you were eating. You would just eat if you were hungry and then stop when you were full and you would try new foods and see what worked and see what didn't. And I feel like as a kid, there's, it's not really in your conscience that certain foods might feel like they have consequences to you. So maybe that's why there's that sense of wonder and more of that intuitive eating activity that's happening. But as you grow older, 
and life gets more challenging and more stressful, it can feel like certain foods pose certain types of consequences. And like, for example, your health might be a bit compromised as you grow older. For example, like if you're a diabetic, you can't necessarily have sugar. So how, or a lot of sugar at least. So how would you recommend people who maybe have some other types of health um, complications to also practice intuitive eating in a healthy way? Yeah. So I think that's a good example because even when there are like, that's a good place of like when you're working with somebody individually, or if like, even if your doctor is um, like aligned with maybe a non-diet approach or you're working with a non-diet dietitian who practices intuitive eating, it can be really helpful for those one-on-one situations. Um, But I'll give you an example. Like a lot of the times I work with like food allergies and intolerances, because that can be really tough too. And, um, celiac runs in my family. So I'm very familiar with, um, like, you know, navigating it with like a gluten intolerance, both personally and like with just family events and that kind of a thing. But the idea is still that you are allowing yourself that permission for all foods. And you're just thinking of it like, so if we're using those internal cues, we're thinking of it like, you know, if you don't like a food, that's kind of an internal cue too, right? Or if a food makes you feel really, really sick, maybe in the amount or the type that you have it, that's like some information we can take in and say, okay, next time, maybe I will change this about this experience, or I'll know that when I do this, I don't feel so great. And so kind of similarly with like a food allergy or intolerance or a medical need with your diet, whatever that is, Um, you can kind of think of it. It's not a rule, like an external rule of this is a bad food or I'll be bad for having this, but this food doesn't really make me feel good. Or this food, you know, doesn't really serve me in that way. And I think that like kind of shift in how you're looking at it can be helpful, but then it can also be helpful to look at like the other ways that that might sneak in there. Right. So if we're talking about gluten intolerance or like celiac, then um, you might say, especially when they're co-opted by diet culture, you know, because bread is such a hot topic and carbs, which just, you know, we all need. <laughs> they're really great for us. They're our body's favorite source of fuel. That'll be my like nutrition tidbit. But um, if we think of like, let's say if I thought of my, which I had in the past done this, thought of myself as, um, okay, I'm gluten-free because still I have friends in my family, all of that then um, I can't have bread, right? So it feels like this restriction and like bread is bad or like maybe I feel kind of good about it because bread is so demonized in our culture that it, you know, could make me feel almost like better than the other person kind of a thing, like that sort of moral value that sometimes comes with certain diet rules. But if I shift that to thinking about, okay, but I can have, doesn't mean I can't have the gluten-free alternatives of these foods that taste really good. They might not be, as good as the gluten version, but, um, I can still, you know, go to a party and have cake. I can still go to a sandwich place and get a gluten-free sandwich or all of these different things. So I try to make it more normalized instead of thinking that I need to swear off every single event that might imply like social things. It might be not so fun to like sit at a, like a place where there aren't any gluten-free options for me. Right. But um, kind of allowing yourself that permission in different ways or where you can, can help it feel less restrictive, even if you have to listen to those restrictions from like a safety medical, um, you know, intolerance or allergy point of view. So trying to like add in some of that, I think can be really helpful. And that's also where it can be helpful. That can be hard to do. And I think, um, but like knowing that it doesn't need to be as 
restrictive. Like you can still create some of that all foods fit with within your own parameters. Definitely. And I think that's just such a healthier mindset to adopt because if you think, oh, because I have this, whatever condition it is, I can't have X, Y, Z foods. I think it will only make you crave them more. And then when you actually do consume those foods, the guilt that comes over you is just so massive. And and then it feels like 30 steps backwards when it really isn't. Um, And I think like, for example, I love ice cream, love ice cream. And Mm -hmm. I, I like something that I've done to kind of reframe my thinking around that is like, I'll eat it. But I know that if I eat like half a pint or something, I'm going to have a stomach ache and I don't feel great. And I don't like that feeling. So instead of thinking like, oh, I can't have ice cream because it's really high in sugar and it's an unhealthy food to eat. I can just not have half of the pint. I can still have a serving and be satisfied with it and move on with my day and not have to think about it so much. Mm -hmm. So I like that point about like making it work for you and also just taking maybe what you might think those external cues are, but really realizing some of it's actually internal and guiding your sense of um, awareness around what you're eating by the internal cues rather than all the external cues and what society tells us is right or wrong or what our friends are doing. So I, I really love that mindset shift. Yeah, I think that's like an awesome example too. And just like the nuance of it, right? Like we want, sometimes we want more ice cream, sometimes we want less ice cream, but like if it's allowed and it's just there and it's not such a loaded food, then it feels much less stressful to navigate that. Yeah. And this also reminds me a little bit about um, just mindfulness in general and the practice of mindful eating. Would you say that intuitive eating uh, is the same thing as mindful eating or is there some sort of crossover between the two? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think that um, I definitely learned about mindful eating before intuitive eating. And I think that that's a lot of people's like lead in or or now, now intuitive eating is much easier to find. I feel like there's a lot more information, especially on social media and everything than it was um, like three or four years ago. But uh, yeah, so mindful eating is included intuitive eating in intuitive eating, but they're not the same because there's like different research um, based on both of those. So intuitive eating has like its own research specifically around intuitive eating and their 10 principles and, applying that. And then mindful eating also has research around it, but it's a little bit less concrete of like being defined. So it can just mean a lot of different things. And so a lot of the times it involves like including mindfulness around your meals that might be like kind of, um, switching from, or like, you know, taking a few deep breaths beforehand or like eating in a more calm environment or noticing these different things about what you're eating, which are all really helpful pieces. And it applies to intuitive eating in the principles where we're talking about like how we're eating and like, you know, our own meal experience and especially noticing satisfaction, which is kind of like noticing how satisfying a food is to you. But it's also that sort of done feeling of when you're eating something and maybe like the taste is starting to change or um, it's, you're kind of noticing that you're not as interested in that food anymore. And that can be something where mindfulness comes in too, but they are different. So um, intuitive eating uses some of those principles, but it's not like the exact same thing. Got it. Yeah. I feel like 
in my head, at least they're very similar, but I didn't really realize it incorporates the aspect of taking a few deep breaths or trying to eat in a more calm environment. And I think after now realizing that intuitive eating might be more practical for a college student, because it's not as if with our busy schedules, we can find a very calm and quiet environment to sit down to have a lunch or a dinner. Oftentimes, like I'll eat on the go or I'll eat while I'm doing homework or studying. So I don't feel like I'm focused on what I'm eating. I'm kind of distracted trying to do everything at once. So mindful eating might be a bit more of a challenge, but I think intuitive eating as since they follow a lot of the same principles, maybe starting with intuitive eating might be um, an easier place to start with changing that relationship with food. Yeah, definitely. And I think like with all of those pieces that you, you know, if someone listens to this and is like, okay, I want to try into eating, I want to like go for this and like check this out and see what it's like. Um, I think also as you read the pieces of it, right, there might be some parts that feel like, oh, like I can't do this because, you know, my schedule is so busy that I don't really have time to, you know, do maybe like this, like sitting in a calm environment part or whatever that is. And I think it's helpful with everything to just like take it, like it can meet you where you're at, right? Like you don't need to overhaul like your entire or like have a different school schedule or class schedule, right? To start working on your relationship with food or like feel a little bit better in your body or around certain foods. I think you can take some pieces right now and see what helps you and then kind of build from there or see how those pieces feel versus feeling like you you know, I think that can just make us push off things for a really long time, right? Or feel like we need to do it perfectly. And I think a lot of this too is like challenging the idea of this like all or nothing thinking or like really commonly like perfectionism that can come into food or wanting to like, you know, do things exactly right or do them all or nothing, those different things. So I think applying those pieces in a way that works for you right now is also a really great place to start. Yeah, definitely. And what I love about intuitive eating, especially, is that it really connects with eating disorders and also diet culture, which are two other topics I love to discuss. Um, I guess we can go into eating disorders because everything we've spoken about around intuitive eating, you know, realizing those internal cues and letting them guide you um, really does relate to kind of how eating disordered eating patterns arise. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, how intuitive eating can help those who suffer from an eating disorder and help change their relationship with food. Yeah, definitely. So I think intuitive eating, um, depending on how what your eating disorder kind of looks like or what's going on right now, intuitive eating can be the goal, but what you do might right now might be a little bit more um, like regimented or like, you know, with your care team, they might come up with something, you know, more specific to you and what's going on. So I just like to say that as a disclaimer, like, you know, sometimes we can't jump right to intuitive eating because it implies that we have the ability to listen to those internal cues. Right. And so depending on what's going on with somebody, if they have an eating disorder, especially, but also other things can make us not be able to listen to those cues right now or make those cues not so reliable. Um, we might need to like do some work outside of that to work towards eventually intuitive eating. Um, but yeah, there's, it's really interesting because there's eating disorders and then there's clinically, um, like subclinical signs. So a lot of that time is like disordered eating or 
things that don't quite meet the DSM-5, which is how we, di- like a dietitian can't diagnose, but is how a, um, an eating disorder would be diagnosed. And I think it's important to validate that if someone is feeling like they're struggling or your relationship with your food feels like, you know, it's causing you stress, it's causing you anxiety, it's like impeding you from like showing up to your life or your day or college classes or events with your friends, that's valid too. And so even if you don't meet the exact criteria, you still deserve like care and recovery from that. And um, it can still be like a really big obstacle in your life. And um, I just say that because we, we know that like eating disorders since 1995 to like 2008 was like the study on um, NADA, which is National um, Eating Disorder Association. And they were showing that like in females, like eating disorders on college campuses were increasing from 23 to 32% among females and 79 to 25% among males. This is definitely applies to all genders. Um, and the percentage of like eating disorder specific from like eating specifically towards like a weight loss diet or trying to lose weight, um, increased for, uh, increased four times in that same period. So it's just definitely something that's increasing and that's with eating disorders, but we're not necessarily seeing those rates of disordered eating, right? Like we don't have that exact statistic because a lot of the times those pieces are normalized. Those pieces, um, might be a little bit harder to measure. So I think it's just important to, mention that, you know, those things are on the rise and happening too. And so the goal with intuitive eating and diet culture, like you're saying, is that we get a lot of these different messages that honestly promote those behaviors and promote those different things. And so starting to call that out, which I feel like a lot of people are starting to do more and kind of like, you know, be like, this is, this ad is like glorifying, you know, restriction or this um, app is like telling us to avoid eating for this amount of time or like these different things and kind of calling those out. But the goal with intuitive eating is to kind of normalize eating and that eating should be normal. (laughs) And, and by that, I mean, you know, not so stressful or fits more with your day versus like your whole day revolving around this thing that we have to do, whether we want to or not, like your body needs food. So I think that there is definitely more awareness around the aspects of diet culture. Um, and you can tell me like maybe some specific ones that like you notice a lot on campus or kind of like come to mind, but I do think there's more awareness about it, but there's also like more of a need to kind of like keep on calling it out and trying to like push against it. Yeah. I, I can't, nothing like immediately is coming to mind I guess, around diet culture, but maybe if I think, you know, about certain like sorority and fraternity scenes, there's definitely the stereotype about um, like maybe a a sorority girl and how some sororities are just filled with a bunch of like really tiny girls. And I mean, it kind of goes back to like eating disorders. And the interesting thing is something that I've come to, to realize is that, um, food is, the eating disorder isn't necessarily about like the food itself. I think it's more about having, or needing to have that sense of control. And then there's like the underlying issue behind that. And oftentimes, um, maybe like anorexia, for example, there's like comorbidities with other types of, 
um, like mental health um, issues as well. So it's interesting because I've a close friend of mine has suffered with an eating disorder and I've spoken a lot about it with her. And um, something that she's kind of brought to my attention is that it's in her eating disorder experience, it was never really necessarily about like the food, but it was more about anxiety that is comorbid with the eating disorder and needing to have that sense of control. And um, I just was really, I did not expect that because in my mind, I thought, oh, people who have behaviors of disordered eating or maybe develop an eating disorder just like want to be thin. That's Mm -hmm. the goal. But I think maybe that's something that kind of uh, arises from the eating disorder, not necessarily like the root cause of it. Um, but I, I also like, I'm not an expert in eating disorder, so I don't really know, but this is kind of what I've heard through friends and family and just through conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that there are often a lot of the times, um, it's kind of like these because it's a it's a mental health diagnosis, right? So it's not necessarily it's like kind of something that's manifesting in food. Like we all end up having these different coping mechanisms, right? Around just different stressors in our life or different things that come up, and um, you know, there's a genetic component to eating disorders that it can, you know some people are more predisposed to them than others in that kind of a situation. But um, I think that's a really good point to to bring up too, that like, it's these other pieces. And that's why it's also really helpful. Like most of the clients who I see, like for um, like, private coaching are, are seeing a therapist too. And it's kind of really helpful to be able to work in that team, because, you know, I can address like the food part and the body image part, and you know, how it's kind of manifesting in our beliefs and behaviors around food and our body. And then the therapist um, can work on like those underlying pieces that are kind of going on too. And it like makes for a really good, you know, there might be other people on the team too, but that is why it's really helpful to have that, that team approach too. And um, yeah. And I think something else that can happen is it's really common to not feel like you are, um, you know, this, I want to like, it's definitely the case for eating disorders, but I also want to make it broad enough that, you know, even if you don't have that diagnosis, you can feel this way too, is my point, especially with like, we know how common disordered eating is. Um, but it can be really common to not feel like sick enough or like deserving of help or care or kind of like, all oh, of my friends are doing this too. Like that feels just feels like what it is, or it just feels kind of normal. Um, and so I think that can like prevent us from wanting to, you know, seek some support out or talk about it or kind of like zoom out and look at those, those pieces too, which is where that like normalization can be so tricky. Yeah. And earlier you had mentioned those, those statistics about um, eating disorders increasing and being on the rise. Would mm-hmm. you say that's attributed to the prevalence of diet culture and like how diet culture is really related to how social media portrays eating and body image. So yeah, I'm just wondering, like, is there a connection there as well that relates to the increasing, you know, eating disorder prevalence and also just disordered eating behavior? Yeah. I don't know specifically if there's like, if I can say that's like the main reason, but I would definitely say that that contributes, right? Like there, we have a lot of research, especially about um, like, 
teenagers feeling like they want to change their body or lose weight from like really young ages, like nine or 10. Uh, or like we have, you know, from the UK, there was a study that said like nine of 10 teenage girls are unhappy with their bodies and that people are, you know, looking and comparing themselves to different like fitspo that they see on social media and how that influences our like idea of what we should look like or how we should be eating and can definitely decrease like body satisfaction or how you're feeling about yourself. Um, and so I would say that those behaviors and just the ability to get that information so much more, it's so much easier to look up, a, like look up a certain way of eating or hear about someone else's experience with, with food and, you know, like transformation photos or, all of these different things is so much easier to kind of come by than like maybe 10 years ago when all that was in like 17 magazine or something right now it's like on your phone and you can see it everywhere all the time. So I would definitely say that that's a new layer to all of our relationships with food too. Yeah. And about social media, which I think is really interesting. There's so many different accounts on social media, like Instagram accounts, that document um, people's diet or the foods that they're eating or the exercises they're doing. And it's funny because when I started Everyday Endorphins, it was an Instagram like blog when I started rowing in high school. And I really was just documenting the exercises I was doing at the boathouse and like the food I was eating. Um, And I really at that time viewed the food that I was eating as fuel to be a better athlete and to be stronger and faster. And then it got to a point where it was like, I don't need to post another salad on my Instagram account. Like nobody cares. And also no matter how many salads I eat, it's not going to help me achieve the better body that I want to have or make me really feel any better. Um, And so I kind of realized like there's just too many accounts out there that even though they seem like they're promoting healthy habits, they're really not. And it kind of also started to make me feel like bad about maybe what I was eating if it wasn't whatever was on their feed. So I've found kind of like that shift also now present day, there's more Instagram accounts that are more focused on body positivity, which is like a whole other interesting topic we could talk about, but it's been really interesting to see that shift from those maybe like traditional Fitspo food Instagram accounts to now this whole entire like body positivity trend and movement. Um, so it's been really inspiring also to see that shift. And that's kind of why I also stopped posting like photos of the food I was eating. I mean, sometimes it's fun, you know, to like post something that you made and it's fun to cook, but it's been really nice to kind of move away from what I was posting earlier. And now also seeing all these different types of accounts on my page as well, more positive accounts. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like an interesting um, thing to highlight too. Like I think Instagram especially is like image based, right? So it takes all of that like nuance and like gray that we've kind of been talking about out of it because it's basically posting, you're just seeing information in this really like hard and fast way of like, this is a photo, I'm like hashtagging it healthy. And so that's what like a healthy meal is composed of, right? And like, especially if it's somebody who has influence sharing that, like that's just kind of how we're interpreting that. And so it's really normal to start to compare like what you're eating to that like perfectly plated, you know, whatever it is. But then the same thing goes with like people when we're posting, like seeing a lot of different photos of like people's bodies or um, seeing really mostly like the same type of body a lot of the times. 
um, which like in our culture of like diet culture is often like rather thin and, um, you know, kind of like often like white and young and all of these different things. And so when we see that and like, that's, I know it's not actually like hashtag healthy, but like when we're seeing that kind of promoted in that way, that is how we're basically interpreting it as like, okay, that's something good. Like that's how I like should look. And, or like, if I ate like this person who's also sharing, you know, these, they're what they're eating and how they're moving. Like it kind of sends this idea because of the way that we're basically socialized around food and body image and all of these things that if we follow these steps that this person is doing, then we will end up looking like this person who is sharing that. And, and so it makes sense if we zoom out and like, look at it in that way. Because it's like, yeah, essentially that's kind of a lot of the times what people are either on purpose or kind of, um, under the surface kind of selling a lot of the times too. So I think it's important to remember that like, even if we all ate and exercised exactly the same way, our bodies would still look different, right? Because, because we're not ever all going to look the same. Even if you followed, like if you, even if you spent every day with your best friend and you ate, you know, exactly the same way you like worked out together, you walked to class together, like you're not going to morph into their body and they're not going to morph into yours. And, um, I think that that's where social media gets really tricky because it takes that nuance out of like all of those other pieces. It just makes it feel like, um, and then some people kind of capitalize off of that too. Cause that's like a lot of the times how these different like fitspo things are essentially like selling their services or selling those other things. So I just say that to like, if you're noticing yourself and it sounds like you kind of did this too, of like when you, and I definitely have to do this for myself all the time too. Like when you notice yourself, like comparison, comparing to someone else's Instagram or like feeling badly about something like what you ate compared to what they ate, it's so helpful to just like unfollow or mute or block those accounts and then follow people who look different than you, like follow people who live differently than you, because then it just like widens your perspective of like, reminds you that bodies all look different, that people all eat different foods and that you know, healthy looks different on all different people, but also just like people look different. And, um, I think that can be really helpful in kind of like breaking out of those monotonous sort of messages or images that we get around health too. Yeah. And I love that point about how, um, how you said, even if we ate the same exact thing and we exercised the same amount, we would still look different and how social media really doesn't take that into account just kind of like mutes that it's really interesting because we all have different like genetic compositions and different biologies, like physiologically. So obviously our bodies are going to be different. And that's so kind of like, you know, it's so obvious, but we don't even think about it because it's not ever talked about. And social media doesn't allow for that to happen because again, with the hashtag healthy or just the same types of bodies or foods that you see on your Instagram or even TikTok, which as you mentioned, like is a whole other thing. And yeah. I think, it's, um, it's important to remind yourself that every, bo- every single body is different and you have to really listen to yourself, bringing it back also to intuitive eating, like really bringing that focus inward and knowing what works for you and what doesn't and being okay with that and really like honoring that. So I'm glad we were able to like hit on all these different topics and they all really do relate to each other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's like the more you start to notice those pieces, like open your eyes to them, the more you see them everywhere, which can be kind of overwhelming, but is also like ultimately helpful just to like help you navigate those things and see that, um, 
you know, there's like a much bigger, it's just much bigger than it might seem. It might seem like just this one choice around food or like how you're feeling, but it's like, okay, actually there are all of these different things in place that like make a lot of sense that I'm feeling this way or like would want to change this or kind of work on that for myself. Yeah, definitely. I know earlier you mentioned that you are starting this group coaching program. Many of my listeners are college students. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what this program is and when it's launching. Yeah. So I'm really excited about it. So basically I, um, a lot of like the, you know, one-on-one clients who I see are not all of them, but a lot of them are in college. And so, um, it's just been really one that's like really fun for me, but also there are a lot of things that come up that are really similar, right? So like a lot of pieces are similar about different campuses and like the pressures around that. And so I was just feeling like, um, that it would be so helpful to have a group component to that because, um, then you can connect with other students too, who are like feeling the same way, like in the same, you know, environments as you and kind of having the same things come up. So it's an eight week, um, coaching program. So basically it's eight weekly calls starting October 14th and there'll be every Tuesday and we might have another time that is added to that, but basically they'll all be recorded too. So if somebody can't make that exact time, you'll be able to see the recording. So you have these eight group coaching calls where we'll meet in small groups and be able to like discuss the materials and different topics and just like support each other and have this environment where like I'll be there, but still will other students. And I've found when I've done groups in the past, um, I started the Wellful Foundation course this year. So we've run that twice. And so you will get that same self-paced online course um, which has been really awesome and exciting to do. And I think just group, group calls are so helpful because it's a different, it's a different environment than working one-on-one and you get to like talk with other people and just like feed off of each other, but also support each other and create this community. And it's really cool to see. So you'll get that self-paced course. You'll have these coaching calls. You'll have a private Facebook group. And basically It'll just be, especially this semester, I feel like we were talking about this before we hopped on to, is going to be so different and I think challenging um, and just really unique. So I thought it was also a good time during that because there's going to be components that are coming up that are not even, you know, things that you've dealt with last semester or two semesters ago. So um, it'll just be like this really, I'm excited for like this community part to also have that like education and resources. Um but also the community. Yeah, definitely. And community is so important, especially if you're talking about topics that are a bit more personal or sensitive, just knowing that you have a support system and knowing that you might not necessarily be the only one that's going through this experience and being able to share that with others and help them uplift you and support you is so important. So I'm really excited for you to launch this coaching program. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited too. Yeah, so registration is open. Um, it's open now. And so it'll be open until the, the 6th. So that's October. Um, but if anybody listens to this and it's still before the 14th, you can send me an email or a message on Instagram and I'll see if we can get you into. Awesome. I'll also be sure to post about it on my Instagram. So people will be able to see it on the Everyday Endorphins Instagram account. Um, but before we also hop off, there's one question that I ask every single person I bring on to the podcast, and it really ties into the name of this podcast about endorphins and happiness. What is one thing that brings you a bit of endorphins every day? 
I love that. Um, I would say probably either a dog walk is like definitely one of my favorites or like coffee outside, drinking coffee outside. 